Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. He's breaking it down so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Stuart Copeland, composer, musician, drummer, a little bit of everything, the composer of an opera. How about that? Stuart Copeland, you know his work from The Police, the legendary group, as drummer of that great band, and thrilled to have you. Hey, Stuart, how are you? Real good, thanks. Well, listen, it's always nice to talk to someone who does what they do well, but you seem to do a lot of things well, and you're very versatile, and your musical taste, has it always been like that? Have you always been diverse like that? Well, you know, if you have an active mind, different things are interesting. You know, once you get on a computer and start cutting up music, well, hey, let's cut up some pictures, uh, or let's create a score kind of one thing leads to another and when you get on a mission like opera of which i've actually written five at this point um you start to reach outside of your original uh playground for other toys you know uh, i was always completely fully immersed in music from the age i first heard music i wanted to be the music but the drums came into my hands first and I got real good at that and kind of earned a living out of that. But all that other stuff was there from the very beginning, the composing stuff. And uh, the drums just, you know, I, I often wonder, you know, if I'd gotten into the guitar instead, would I have had the same kind of life? I don't know. Who, who can say? You know, I wonder, and again, I mean, this is just an observation here, but you grew up in the Middle East, right? You were born here in the States. Yeah, very different from the Midwest. Yeah, I was going to say, from the Middle East. And yeah, the, the Midwest is in between New York and Montana. <laughs> the Middle East is between Israel and Iran. <laughs> well, outside of your family, which, you know, of course has great musical roots, what kind of music were you listening to over there at a young age? I mean, were there outlets? Was it interesting music? or did you Well, do- on the radio, there was the Voice of America, which for an hour a week or so, maybe a little more, they, they played uh, pop music from back home. And the BBC also had a service which played pop music and these two radio shows, we would gather around and hear what was going on. In Beirut, there was a record store uh, run by an enterprising uh, Lebanese who sold pop records to the American, French, English, and other kids who were basically there because their parents worked in the oil business in Saudi Arabia, and they all sent their kids to school in Beirut at the American Community School there. And so there was kind of an enclave of Western culture of these kids desperately trying to be teenagers and listening to one hour a week of pop music on the BBC. Um, And that was pretty much what we gravitated to as kids. Meanwhile, my dad was playing Buddy Rich and my mom was playing Stravinsky, but we were in a world of Arabic music. So you figure that out. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's a lot of mixtures in there. Who's the first drummer that caught your ear? Sandy Nelson. From where? 
Well, I don't know where he was. He, he might have been in the Ventures. I don't know where he came or where he went, but he was the guy who did Let There Be Drums, which was the first drummy record where the drums were right in your face and uh, sounded like King Kong. Now, as a 12-year-old, I was not King Kong. I was um, Ping Pong. I was just a little undernourished, late-developing, squeaky little kid. But the sound of those drums like thunder... Oh, man, just listening to that, there was like one hair growing on my chest, which grew an inch every time I heard that track. Uh, is there a young guitarist and a young bass player anywhere there as a 12-year-old where you could kind of get together and, I don't know, garage band or, you know, whatever you... There, uh, what, oh, in Beirut, yeah, they were the Black Knights, a band. My, my brother was the coolest kid in Beirut. He was a motorcycle thief, which, you know, <laughs> and had a leather jacket with a collar turned up. He was the Fonz in Beirut. And uh, he got kicked out of school, and you know my legendary brother Ian, who later on, and he he at the age of twelve, he was my agent, got me in my first band, and later on in life was my agent up until, um, you know, he he died sadly at the age of fifty-seven. Um, uh, he was a war hero, Vietnam vet. Uh, agent Orange eventually got him, but he. Uh, was the coolest kid in town, uh, leader of the pack, and when the band, the Black Knights, the American kids in the high school there, uh, their drummer, their dad, his dad got posted back to the States or something like that, um, and Ian said, hey, I'll be the drummer, and of course, they had Ian in the band, they're automatically they're cool. The problem was he couldn't play. Yeah. And he had this drum set, and, and but, it's, but when he would roar off on his motorcycle, I would sneak into his room on pain of death. Wow. And I would get on there, and I would try and do what he was, I could hear him struggling with, and I'm sitting outside of his door saying, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, uh. So he'd, he'd roar off, and I'd get in there, and I'd do it, easy peasy. And I'd think, well, wait a minute, there's nothing that I can do that my big brother can't do, so I must be doing it wrong. But the drums came easily to me, and I was caught and thrashed by Ian playing on the drums. But he said, well, the kid's good, so he got me into the band. And so I was the drummer, age 12, in the Black Knights, and we played the British Embassy Beach Club, the uh, American Embassy Beach Club, and, you know, various gigs around. We, we played um, the Animals, Kinks, uh, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, um, that kind of stuff, and James Brown, too. You know, there was a club, and actually, before I say that, let me remind folks that are coming in a little late, we're turning on their radios a little late, Frank McKay here with the wonderful Stuart Copeland, Five Operas, he's the he's the composer of Five Operas and so much more, the new Spyro. Uh, ah, yes, Spyro, yeah. yeah, the rebirth of Spyro, the reboot, that was a gig that I had 20 years ago, where a call to, came to score a game, and back then, game... The game industry was huge, but they hadn't yet really gotten around to spending money and investing on the music for their games because all of their thought process was developing the game action, the look, and sure, they're going to have music playing there. But, you know, the guy, the, the genius who composed Mario did that on eight bits. You know, that is really squeaky, and it's hard to be inspired on that squeaky little sound. And yet... That guy came up with a really catchy tune and wrote great music on this really narrow band, low-res, um, you know, all, the only bandwidth that they had available for the music was very thin. Um, so, but Spyro, they had opened it up a bit. It was, it was you know, it was like a 16-bit, you know. Uh, and um, so I wrote all this music for it and had 
four glorious years. Every summer I'd do another quadruple album of backing tracks for this game. It was just fun work, and I got to play the game. You know, don't don't interrupt me while I'm working. And a uh, strange thing about uh, music in general is that the higher the intensity, the better the product. Not you don't you don't kind of like water it down. You act, if you have to produce twenty tunes in a day, those twenty tunes are better than if you only have to write two tunes in a day. Go figure. I don't know why that is exactly, but when you know when I do a television series, when I back in the day, a show comes in Tuesday. I got to ship that score out on Friday. Then I got a couple of days off. Then a show comes in Tuesday, and I got to work in. And you know, you ship something, whether it's or not, it's your finest hour. Uh, something's on tape. And guess what? Years later, you look back. That's actually the best work I ever did. Was under these extreme Churnum and Burnham circumstances. And Spyro was such an environment where I just had to produce a volume of just music upon music. And the weird thing is that it got more and more fun, and more and more of a frenzy of creativity. And the results, I'm really happy with. In fact, I was just in the course of writing a big symphonic piece uh, to play with a giant orchestra on those spiral tunes, those little three-note tricks, that little chord shift, that little bass line that I just, you know, just stuck with me that I wrote in a real hurry. And I'm just in the point of creating a big orchestral piece based on all that when a call comes in from Activision uh, saying, hey, guess what? We've decided to reboot the game 20 years later. We're doing the first three years of it with all your music. Wow. Wow. And uh, I was real happy about that. Some guy, uh, his name is actually Stefan, but that son of a bitch had to listen to every bar and earball it all. And what I mean by that is that he had to listen to it and say, that's da 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 and write it down. And then recreate that and regenerate all that music. He had to find all those samples that I used. He had to completely recreate uh, all that music. And he did an incredible job. So I was very honored that he spent so many hours and got it so right. But the reason he had to do all that was so that. I mean, the music that I supplied back then in 16-bit was st- uh, just a stereo track. And back then, we all talked about how when Spyro goes into Jeopardy, he goes in a scary bit, well, then the bass line gets heavier, and some scary music comes in, fades in. And when he goes into the happy place, uh, this, you know, it gets nicer. Uh, by the time they put the music in, they had run out of bandwidth. They had used every bit of memory that the PlayStation could uh, utilize. And um, so the mu- you didn't do anything, you just played, you know. Um, nowadays, they can do all that. They have the bandwidth. And so Stefan rebuilt all that music in such a way so that when Spyro goes to that castle... By the way, in the new game, it's the same castle. It's the same level. It's The, sa- the, the treasure is buried in the same place, folks. Uh, but it's just unbelievably high resolution. Instead of going across a green field, you can now see every blade of grass, every butterfly flapping its wings. The, the, you know, the, the, the texture is incredible. And they applied that to the music as well. So the music is much higher res than it was. And, by the way, you can flip a switch and hear 
my old stereo tracks if you like. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. He's breaking it down so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Yeah, listening to the voice of Stuart Copeland from the police fame and five opera fame. How about that? And Spyro. Spiral recognition there too, which is, uh, by the way, a great soundtrack to the game. My kids love it, and I always knew that you composed the original, and it, it, just a wonderful job on it. Frank McKay here with Stuart Copeland. Let me ask you something, and pardon my ignorance on this, and not to take a job away from Stefan, but is there no program or an adequate program that would take what you did originally and kind of transcribe it? For us, is there anything like that? In now? Well, the, 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 the weird thing is that they should have called me because I've got all those MIDI programs. I could have just sent Stefan the entire thing, ah. every note of it, uh, in my computer because it was all done on a computer. It was all done with an application called Digital Performer, which is a composing application where you, you just enter the notes, dink, dank, donk, and it plays dink, dank, donk, just like you told it. Uh, he had to do it with his ears and figure it out, but I could have just sent him the programs and it would it would just played like a uh, player piano. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, he he went through all that work. Well, it's by know. the way, it's it's a strange thing. There is a generation for whom I'm the I'm the Spyro guy, and about that Spyro guy who did the music on Spyro. Hey, you know who used to play in a band? <laughs> well. Let me ask you something about that. And again, not to get specific, but you're doing this uh, Spyro at a time, I imagine, in the 80s or, or 90s, right? I mean, you know, somewhere early. And at that point, composers and writers are being treated much better than they were in the 50s and the 60s, and there was less ripping off of the composers. But was the video game industry up on it right away, or did it take time for them to deal properly with the composers? Financially, that is. They were in there pretty quick. Um, they realized the importance. Um, you know, they're kind of more forward-leaning than the movie guys and the music business guys. The game guys are a little more high-tech, a generation younger, and more forward-leaning technologically. Um, and so they were more aware of the power of even that squeaky 8-bit music on, you know, Mario they they knew that, that that was an earwig and that was an important ingredient. So I think they were, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd say they were pretty quick to start taking care of us musos. Yeah, and you're right about an earwig and the importance of having that earworm or whatever in there. It's such a huge part of the gaming. I mean, some would argue it's even hypnotic or it's brainwashing or whatever. Yeah, that, that spiral music has more impact on people than great films I've done, you know, blockbuster films. The score, you watch the movie once, if it's really great twice, I mean, that's rare. But, I mean, you're exposed to what's. But when you hear that game music, you are sitting there in a world of that tune going around and around and around and around. It goes deep into your psyche. In fact, I put hidden messages in there. So all you Spyro uh, players, in fact, now is the time. I give the command, Excalibur, okay, execute everybody, all you Spyro players. Um, 
<laughs> Just kidding, folks. Yeah. Just well, kidding. Well, some Put people down might, the knife. Put down the knife. Some people might take you seriously. That's a loyal following you have there. What was the first score you did? I mean, you know, outside of... The first, the first film score was for Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. And the film was Rumblefish. And uh, it was an art movie that he made. <clears throat> and he wanted to just reach outside of the normal um, bag of uh, talent and for actors as well as music. Um, and Francis has an unbelievable gift for finding people. Uh, you know, he, he, he pointed his finger in my direction and I, and lo, I had a 30 year com career composing films, you know, because he, he spotted, I didn't even know I could do it myself, but he sort of invited me down to Tulsa and told me about the movie and they were rehearsing it at the time. And I got thinking and I got into a studio and I got all steamed up with his concept of time passing and rhythm are connected. And so I got all these loops and strange sound effects and I just got all, all carried away. And, um, from that, you know, it was pretty much his idea to to uh, be a film composer, and boy, that sure worked out for me. But look at the rest of the cast of this obscure art movie. Almost every one of the kids in that movie has had an Oscar, has, you know, has won an Oscar since there. Diane Lane, Mickey, um, Matt Dillon, Mickey Rourke, Larry Fishburne, um, I'm, 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 I'm missing a few here, I know there are more, I mean... It was unbelievable, the cast that he picked. And they were all just teenagers, pretty much, yeah. back then. They were kids. Who knew that Matt Dillon and Mickey Rourke were going to turn into... Even Dennis Hopper, who was sort of known, but he went on to great heights, you know. Yeah. You're, you're well, that's kidding. old Uncle Francis for you. Yeah. yeah. He sure can pick them. Yeah, you're not kidding. That's an S.E. Hinton book, I think, Rumblefish, right? It was, like, same person that did The Outsiders, and that was then, this is now, right? Am I... My yeah. yeah. You know, it's always interesting when you bring up Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, he's such an artist, or from what I read, I mean, he's such an artist. And, you know, you think of him and you think of Apocalypse Now and everything that came along with that and the going beyond budget and all of that. And he seems like, you know, what he wants, he's going to get one way or the other. He doesn't care if it takes longer. It doesn't seem care if there's little roadblocks in the way. He's going to get what he wants. He's a real artist. Was he like that with your score? Was he... Well, you know, with the outside world, he wants a crane. He's going to get a crane. He needs more explosive. He's going to shake the world until he gets more explosive, whatever. But with artists, with the talent, it's a very different face. He is very nurturing. He is, uh, he, he finds the people that he thinks have got it, and then he turns you loose. Uh, he, you know, he came down, you know, uh, to the studio where I was working, and he said, that's great, more of that. Um, he gave me very specific instructions for what he needed for each scene. It's called the spotting session, where the composer and the film director, they look at the film, which has been shot and, and cut. Um, in olden times, it used to be shot, cut, and locked. Okay, this is the locked picture. It's not changing from here. And so the sound effects people, the dialogue people, and the composer, they can all now work with something that's solid. Nowadays, with computers, it's a moving target. None of the movies are not locked. They're latched. And they, you know, even after they've done all the sound effect, the dialogues, you know, the, all the different crews have got all the different elements in place. They can still lose four frames. In olden times, it would have it would have been everyone would have slashed their wrists. It would have cost a lot. They just can't do that now with computers. You can do anything you want. Um, and so, the he, what he did was just turn people loose. 
And he came in, he liked what he heard, gave me specific instructions for the scenes uh, in the spotting session. Okay, here, right there, when, when Diane Lane looks over at Matt Dillon, I don't want you to feel the pain until he looks back at her. Then I want to feel the pain of their tension between them. Uh, and you know, he, he, he didn't tell me what notes to play, but he told me what, how he specifically wants you to feel from one shot to the next. And it's my, the, the film composer's job is to direct the audience's emotion in that way. Um, I didn't know how you do that. I, I was kind of inventing the wheel for myself. So the invention that I came up with was not the same invention that a professional would have come up with. Ergo, revolutionary. You know, since I didn't know how you're supposed to do it, I had to make it up, which was kind of different from the way it was traditionally done. And that's just nuts for Francis. He loves that. Composer Stuart Copeland is the voice that you're hearing. Frank McKay, thrilled to be with the well-rounded a musician and composer as he could possibly be. Five operas to his credit, and of course all his great drumming from the police. Frank McKay here with Stuart Copeland. Let me ask you this. You've done so many scores and you've done so much composing over these last 30 years, as you mentioned. I'm sure there were conflicts, gigs you couldn't take that you had to pass on because you either had or maybe you didn't think it would be much or just because you had other work and it just conflicted. Is there anything you passed on that you look back and said, oh man, I could have done really well? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Yeah, yeah, there is um, uh, a couple, in fact. One where. I got a call from John Hughes. He's doing a funny little movie with teenagers since I was, and this is, this is right after Rumblefish and was, I was the toast of Hollywood with this, uh, revolutionary score done by a rank amateur. Um, and, uh, he was making this movie about kids, but by this time I thought that I should be getting calls from Cecil, Cecil Beta Mill and I was going to be scoring the next, I thought I would, that's it. I'm made. I am the boss composer now. Um, and so I didn't pay much attention to his funny little movie called The Breakfast Club. Ah, yeah. And the next ten movies he made, which changed the world of teenhood. You know, oh, man, that was dumb. But another one was made, uh, one of these mistakes. You know, by the way, it's impossible. Nobody can get through show business without little moments like that. Um, and also moments of great fortune where I said, hmm, yeah, I'll give that a chance. And it turned out to be, you know, she's all that. Uh and so the other one was when my uh, manager got a script um, from a kind of a not really well-known director. It had a decapitation on page three, and he said, nah, I don't, I don't think so. And he didn't even pass it on to me. Um, well, the next film that the director made called Wall Street, uh, do you think Stewart would take a call from Mr. Co- Mr. Stone now, you know, Oliver Stone. Yeah. <laughs> the wow. movie they had passed on was, what was it, Platoon Patrice? Oh, that was a war movie. 
And of course, there's going to be a decapitation in a war movie, but I passed on an Oliver Stone movie before he was Oliver Stone. The next, second time, he calls me, yes, sir, yes, sir, coming right up, sir, be right there. Oh, wow, what you could have done with Platoon. Actually, it's very good music in Platoon, right? I mean, but boy, you could have owned that. That's tremendous. Again, Stuart Copeland here with me, Frank McKay, composer Stuart Copeland. Do you have a running list? Are you like a statistic keeper, or do you just kind of go with the flow? Do you have like a set number of, this is how many scores I've composed? You know, obviously, it's easy to count to five, but that's a tremendous amount of work, five operas. I've probably done about 40 scores, you know, it's kind of where do you draw the line? Proper film scores for feature-length film, and then uh, television series, television special, made-for-TV movie, uh, Mitsubishi commercial. Um, you know, hired gun for the eyes. Yeah, How pay me money and I'll make your audience weep. <laughs> um, actually, no, I've retired now. Now, you know, that was ten years ago. I got out of the professional side of uh, commercial composing, which, by the way, I'm thankful for every note that I was paid to write. Wow, is that an education in how to make music your slave when you've got people beating up on you because I need to feel, it's, it's happy, sad, but I'm, I need it to feel sad, happy. And by the way, there is a difference. Uh, you know, when you absolutely, you know, when you're an artist, you follow your instincts and you get real good at what you want to do. When you're a professional hired gun, you get real good at what is required under any circumstances. So you really have an education rammed down your throat. I need to to make me, you know, one film I was hired and they had, they had um, secured the rights to Rodgers and Lieberstein songs, you know, uh, all these Broadway show tunes. Ooh, puke. Uh, but they wanted me to take that music and twist it up into the score and so that that same music made you feel bad instead of good because uh, it was kind of a dark comedy, this movie. And uh, I had my nose rubbed in this Broadway show music, and guess what? I learned a thing or two. Wow, actually, the music makes me want to puke, but you know, if you, the way you get from the verse to the chorus, back to the verse, and then you put the bridge, I see, it's like you see the formula you learn from having your nose rubbed in all these different places that you wouldn't go as an, as an artist who is free. Yeah. So that professional life uh, equipped me for what came next uh, when I kind of got out of that business and I've been writing opera and orchestral work ever since with all the stuff that I learned under the gun, you know, my years before the mast, all that stuff I learned, I can now apply to art for art's sake. So I go out and I play with the Chicago Symphony or the Colorado Symphony or over there in Vienna or wherever. I go and play fancy music with the fancy orchestras uh, where the ice is colder uh, and I don't have to drag around a band. The band's already sitting there, 60 of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, if you think about that. Obviously, in 30 years, technology's changed, and you got everything from Pro Tools or Logic or whatever, you know, whatever it is there, but the technology has changed. Because of that, is it safe to assume that your approach to composing has changed in 30 years? Yeah. The technology has made so much possible. Um, it's possible for an, uh, an individual to sit at home and make a movie. Uh, get images, animate them, write the music for it, you know, reach, turn on a microphone, do the voices, you know. So the technology means that an artist 
can go beyond the instrument that they learn. You know, in olden times, you would learn how to play the guitar, and that's what you do. You play guitar. Then you look for opportunities where you can play the guitar, and you have to go to the man for money to pay for the studio to get you in there, and, you know, look for you know. Now, that guitarist, he can sample himself, uh, take it down an octave, and he's the bass player, too, and he, you're, with technology, that same musician can do 10 more different jobs. And by the way, he can cut his own video that he shot himself at home. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, how things have changed. Would you have predicted... And so what that does is it means that um, you're born with that gift, I believe, uh, that tune. Um, you know, music that I write today, I was born with when I was zero years old. The only difference is I've got the technique, the skills. I developed the skills and have the gear to make that idea hit the real world. Um, and so when the technology opens up new possibilities, that original seed of the idea that you're born with, you know, you have music surging through your brain or not. Um, you know, Stephen King has plot lines surging through his brain or not, if he's not Stephen King, you know, everyone has their thing. The technology does allow you to develop areas of that gift that would not have been available previously. How often have you woken up in the middle of the night and just said, well, I got it, you know, something's here, and, and you just walk over to whatever your instrument at the moment is and lay it down? I mean, how often does that happen to you? Uh, with lyrics, and I'm not that much of a songwriter, but, I, you know, they're very useful. Um, that that happens a lot. You know, I learned that from old Stingo. He would uh, he'd be in whatever circumstance, sitting at the dinner table, riding in a car, wherever, and suddenly three words would pop into his mind, and he'd write them down, and he'd keep them for later. And uh, But with music, it's a constant thing. The river's flowing, and you don't need to grab this bit of river cause if, you know, until you need it. You know, half an hour, uh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to need some music, and the river's still flowing, so you reach into the river that morning and you see what you get that morning, you know, uh, different from the water that passed by that last night. So um, occasionally you get a three-note trick in your head that, hmm, I should remember that one occasionally, but usually you wake up in the morning, you go to your music station, you turn on your gear or pick up your instrument, and uh, what you need reveals itself right there. Or not, if you haven't got the gift. How much Stuart Copeland music have we never heard? Oh, my God. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. A lot. Um, because of many reasons. Because, uh, you know, I've had scores thrown out. You're not a man you're not a, or, or a woman. You're not a professional yeah. until you've had a score thrown out. Um, and they're thrown out for the weirdest reasons uh, that have nothing to do with whether you have any worth as a musician. Uh strange, capricious Hollywood, you know, anyone who saw Entourage knows that, you know, no, the, the guilty go, get rewarded, no good deed goes unpunished. So yes, I've got lots of movie in the, music in the cookie jar, and eventually it'll come out. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, I've got my jams here because my studio, the Sacred Grove, is a hang for musicians. It's 
it's a recording studio disguised as not a recording studio. It's just, you know, like Sherlock Holmes study or something. And my buddies come over here and jam, and I've got cameras all around the room, and I just switch everything on. Everything is ready to record. In fact, you can see all this stuff on YouTube. It's called The Sacred Grove. You can see Snoop Dogg at The Sacred Grove, Neil Peart, uh, you know, uh, various people come over here, Ben Harper, Stanley Clark, you know, people come over here and just jam, and we have a fun party. And they're hardly even aware. We're not it's not a recording session we're just jamming but the cameras are rolling and the whole studio is wired up so that i just go into record and every square foot of the room has got a mic on it and is in record you pick up this guitar there's a mic picking it up you go play that keyboard it's hardwired into the system you play, you know plug into that amplifier i got a di going on and so any instrument anyone picks up is in record so cool stuff happens and I cut this stuff up uh, just for kicks and put it up on YouTube. Once Forget how we got into that subject. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201 201- 225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Yeah, well, listen, once again, Stuart Copeland is our very special guest. We've got a couple moments left. Frank McKay here with Stuart. When you mentioned that, that all these people come and you, you kind of have a jam session, it harkens back to what I heard and what I've always thought of and fantasized about Zappa. I mean, Frank Zappa. But I think that was more, I mean, probably more formal than what you're talking about, right? I mean... It, Frank Zappa is very formal. Yeah. There was no... Well, there was a lot of improvisation there, but within a very high-level organization, he was very preconceived. He composed very complex music. Uh, and anyone who ever played with Zappa is the real deal. Um it's sort of like the the Annapolis of musicianship or something. The Harvard, the uh, the Oxford. You know, if you if you're a Zappa guy, you're a made man. Yeah, Chad Wackerman and you know. People. Yeah, Vinnie Caliuta, all these guys. You know. You know, it, particularly the drummers. I often wonder, and I'm sure Dweezil has a handle on it, but the vault with all those two-inch tapes. I mean, nowadays you got electronic, but back then it was probably all two-inch. Oh yeah. And, you know, what that vault must be like. I mean, the same question for Zappa. I mean, big is what it must be, because those tapes are huge and heavy. I've got a big vault myself with two-inch tape, which I'm just now scratching my head about, you know. What do I do with it? Do I just let it sit there until the day that I need it, or do I digitize it all now so that it's done and I can burn the tape? Oh. Um God, that sounds, Just working like, on that. that sounds like a sin to burn the t- burn any tape that you've worked on. Yeah, in fact, I would. I, I've learned, you know, um, that not to be. It's a strange thing to me. It's nothing. It has, it has no value to me. Um, little story for you. I, over at, uh, you know, Sting was telling me he went to a, a party, you know, fancy upscale apartment in New York City, and he goes in, he sees the lyric to Roxanne framed on the wall. You know, that's his handwriting and a couple of duff words that he crossed out and replaced, you know, 
Uh, wow, where'd you get that? He said, well, I got it for an auction, $40,000, would you believe? <laughs> and, uh, well, what's the provenance? You know, that, that, I can tell you, that is my handwriting, he says, uh, without my American accent. Um, and, uh, well, the, 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 you know, the cleaning lady must have stolen it off the floor or something. But anyhow, it got into market and it was verified and I bought it. And on one hand, Sting could think, well, darn, they stole from me. On the other hand, if, if that would still belong to me, that piece of paper would be in a trunk, in a garage, at the bottom of a, you know, would just sit there moldering unloved. But in someone else's hands, it's a thing of wonder. Um, and so those two-inch tapes of mine, uh, they don't mean anything to me, but they might, you know, I've, I've, I've been, you know, I've been lectured by fans who say, look, don't throw that stuff away. I mean, yeah, it would be crazy. I mean, I can't even imagine something like that. It's the same thing, you know, with Zappa. I don't think a lot of that Zappa stuff will ever be heard. There's just so much of it from what I hear. Again, composer Stuart Copeland is our very special guest, and we've got a couple moments left. Frank McKay with Stuart Copeland. Stuart, is there anything... And I don't know what kind of guy you are. Are you kind of go with the flow and when the opportunity comes up? Or are you calculated? Do you set up a list in the beginning of the year or a bucket list? Well, both. Um, In show business, generally, uh, you are calculating and setting your own course uh, and doing what you want to do. But then you get incoming calls. Um, And sometimes what you want to do, you know, sometimes you're hiring people and sometimes you're being hired. Sometimes you're auditioning people to work on your thing and you are the Lord and master. Sometimes you are the supplicant going to, for a job interview. Um, no matter who you are, you got to serve somebody. Uh, and if you're real good at it, you got people serving you as well. Uh, you, you have, you you have a place somewhere in the, in the food chain. After five operas, composing five operas, I mean, well, yeah, you're really into those operas. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm not. <laughs> you're I didn't get impressed by the opera thing. I, I, I am too. By the way, I, I, I'm glad you appreciate it because they're hard work. But you, you know, they take about three years to write to get it all together. Okay. You know, you write every word of dialogue is sung. I just think of Pacini. I just think of Mozart when I think of opera. You know, it's like, who writes opera? You know, these old legends from the 1700s and everything else. So if you write one opera, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed, obviously, with Tommy, the rock opera. Well, the opera is sort of like jazz. You know, jazz is more fun to play than it is to listen to. <laughs> right. <laughs> and opera is more fun to write than it is to listen to. It's just because you, you're, it's all about the music. It's you take a storyline and you musicize all of it. So the, uh, the exercise of creating opera is just the, it's the most fun of composer a musician can have with his clothes on. It's just absolutely got everything going for it for a musician. Now, it's a, for, for the general public, it's a very rarefied world. The sound of those voices, you know, alienates some people. And by the way, the reason those opera voices sound so funny is because it's live. You see an opera, unlike a concert, it's all the room, and that person is standing 30 feet away, and you're hearing, they're not, they haven't got a microphone on. You're hearing the physicality of producing the music like that and, and, and projecting it creates that sound. And when you get immersed in that world, you start to love that sound. You know, give me more of that. I mean, what do you have in the works that we haven't mentioned, whether it's an opera or a symphony? Or well, now I'm going, I'm, I'm going uh, to, to the pops. I mean, I've written um, 
I've written concerti, which I play, and some that I don't. I get to go and watch some other people play the concert that I wrote, uh, and I can sit in the audience. But generally, folks like it when I show up and bang on the drums, and I kind of enjoy doing that myself. Um, and I've had to learn a whole new of playing, technique of playing very quietly, but with all kinds of snap and pizzazz, but just at a different volume level. And I've been doing these, you know, concerto for Stu Daddy and orchestra, and someone had the brilliant idea of, look, why don't you do your shows with these orchestras and play a little bit of Wall Street, a little bit of Spyro, a little bit of Rumblefish, even a couple of police songs. And so I've been spending the last couple months, and I've got another month or so at it, taking those tunes and turning them into orchestral scores so that... Um, I can play these songs, you know, I, I created the music for Wall Street with my computers and here, but to actually turn it into a chart for 60 guys to play is a whole different enterprise, and that's what I'm doing today. About 40 scores, five operas, and all the great work with the police. Stuart Copeland has been our very special guest. Frank McKay here with Stuart Copeland. Stuart, do you have a website or a social media site where people can kind of follow along with what you've been doing? Yeah, stuartcopeland.net. Easy enough there. Hey, what's the rest of you? Well, one, the other place you should go is uh, uh, on YouTube. Uh, I guess the keyword would be uh, Sacred Grove. Sacred. And there's all all the jams that I do up there. I, you know, I forget whether I'm Stuart Dash Copeland or Stuart Copeland Dash or, you know, people steal your name before you, you say, hey, new technology. I think I'm going to get on the Twitter. <laughs> and somebody else has already got your name. And every album name that you've ever done, and every song, every dog you ever owned, they've already got it. <laughs> What's the rest of your year look like in closing? You have live performances, more composers. Well, these shows start in March next year, and between now and then, I'm engaged in other creative exercises, which I will reveal when the day comes. Uh, right today, though, I'm still working on the scores for those shows that I'll be doing in March okay. around Europe. Well, listen, thank you very much. You've been generous with your time, and congratulations on everything. I mean, what a career. Well, thank you. going strong. Thanks a lot, Stuart. All right. Thanks a lot. Frank McKay here. Stuart Copeland has been our very special guest. You know his work, over 40 scores, movies and TV, and Spyro, the new reboot of Spyro, of gamers out there. And, of course, you know his great drumming from so much work, certainly the legendary Police with Sting and Andy Summers. It's such a big band still to this day, and you hear the music constantly. Again, Stuart Copeland has been our very special guest. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.